I know you're into rocks. Are you into rocks? I've been collecting rocks since I was a little kid. I like crystals. Um, of course kids are drawn to rocks because it's there's so many ways that they can have that sensory input with them. Picking up shiny rocks and showing them off and putting them in a bag never to be seen again. That's basically my experience with rocks. You know, who doesn't like crystals and agates and anything shiny? Thanks for tuning in. All right, guys. Welcome to the Bird Biologist Podcast. I got a guest here. We're here in Spokane Valley in my home doing the last podcast that will ever happen from this house because I am moving and uh, this is kind of a special... So it's, this works out really great to be my last sort of Spokane uh, podcast. And the podcast is with uh, a woman, Tori Kaufman, who works for kind of a conglomerate partnership. True. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Um, so you work for kind of, you get paid by Ducks Unlimited. I believe the money came from the Intermountain West Joint Venture. And you mostly do the work for Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. That is correct. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes I do the work for whoever needs me. So I work out of the headquarters in WDFW. But yeah. Anyway. Correct. Excellent. Well, we're excited to have you on the show and talk a little bit about some of the biology that you've been doing and um, some of the work. But I think one of the first questions that I like to always ask is some history. So tell me, how did you, how'd you end up getting into this gig? So I was always like a weirdo kid that liked to poke dead stuff and like collect leaves. And then um, I wanted to be a vet my entire life until I went to Peru in high school with my grandparents and asked one of the tour guides how I could save the rainforest. And she told me to grow up, go to college and become a conservationist. And here I am 12 years later <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing that. <laughs> takes time. I think about when I tell people how many years I was in school, people are always like, for what? For that job? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I barely got this job too. <laughs> and there's a lot of biologists and not a lot of jobs. So, uh, so, yeah. um, so you ended up going in and you got a degree in biology? Um, I got an undergrad in fisheries and wildlife science. And then I got a master's degree in biology. Excellent. Yeah. And, Tell me a little bit, we kind of pre-chatted about this, tell me about your cool master's project. So my master's project was on Canada geese, and I was not excited about it because I came from a songbird background, like passerines in Missouri, but it was actually a lot more interesting than I thought because it studied, I studied the movement and dispersal of geese. It wasn't just a population study, which in songbirds normally you're quantifying their decline for the most part, but... Yeah. Um, my advisor had this 17 year database that he had used on a introduced flock of Canada geese, which were supposedly all introduced flocks are supposed to be 100% residential. They, they don't migrate. And he was like, I've been watching these birds for two decades. I know some of them are migratory, dang it. And it turns out about 40% of them were migratory and it wasn't, I mean, their social structure is very complex. So he had all these theories about which individuals from which family groups would be moving. And it actually was complete bogus. We have no idea which ones are moving or why. Um, his evolving theory is what he calls social saturation, which is very underpublished at this time. 
What's social saturation? You got me. So geese are highly social. They're actually, I mean, socially, they're a lot more complex than songbirds. Um, I even had a conversation with him. I was like, I didn't expect to like this project, but geese are dope. And he was like, I felt the same way like 40 years ago when I started this. <laughs> um, but so geese can recognize up to a thousand members of a flock. And they usually limit their flocks to about 1,200 members. They recognize cousins like hatch siblings, uncles, they crutch their babies together so they like communally raise their young. Yeah, super broods and crushing sort of stuff. Yeah, and they're really good parents. So they have a really high success rate, like 80% on any given day, 80% of the goslings will survive at least a year. Anyway, um, and as a result of that, you have these really complex social systems. And so like Spokane Valley is developed because Spokane started overflowing into the valley, correct? Well, yes. in go ghost. Are we, ta- are we talking about humans or geese? Still? Humans. Okay. Humans. <laughs> so, like humans, just kind of continue to sprawl because we can take on most resources. What's seeming like it's happening in geese is if that was geese, it wouldn't have happened that way. Like we would have reached a certain like there are so many humans in this area, and we're all tired of talking to each other, and so you know we're going to go develop Wenatchee. We're going to go develop Corville. This like corridor that has developed between Spokane and Spokane Valley of humans just doesn't happen in geese because there is not a social saturation for humans, but there is for geese. So cool. I, I have a, a goose story for you. Yes. This just happened. This just happened. So I was telling you about my new house down in Burns mm-hmm. and there is a, um, like a, a basalt cliff, maybe six 500 yards from my house which has some geese nesting on it. no there's no pond no lake no nothing they're just one pair that's nesting up on this little cliff which is kind of normal for the desert but this is the crazy part is that the the male goose a ganda um it is actually defends this unbelievable territory so when i let my dogs out in the alfalfa field behind my house 600 yards away it gets up off the cliff it flies out and chases them around, like flies and gets them to chase them. You know how that, that sort of like broken kill deer thing? It flies low and get them and chase them. And it's actually defending like 600 meters. I, I, I can't even believe it. And I thought the first time I thought, well, it's just a fluke. It's just coming down here at the same time. And then now every time I let my dogs out in that field, I see that I can look up there and see that goose come flying off there. And it's there's a lot more to those guys than I think sometimes we think that's going on. I've never, I've never seen a goose that was that defensive of its territory. It's probably pretty young. I, unknown, unknown yeah. what that guy is thinking. And that is its feeding area is this pivot, but it's not necessarily like it's defending its feeding territory from four wire hairs, which is funny. So back to your, your graduate work. So that was studied in... Um, Cookville, Tennessee. In Tennessee, Tennessee, Tech, yeah. Tennessee. And um, what does it look like there? What are the, the geese are like urban? Is this like wetland river systems? Where are the geese hanging out? So it's primarily upland wetland river systems. I mean, they're valleys, but we've got the Columbia Plateau right there, mm-hmm. which cuts into three or four states. Um, but Canada geese were actually entirely extirpated from the United States and most of North America in the 50s because they were overhunted mm-hmm. and so all the geese that we see and people are like what do you mean like we can't fathom that but they had to establish 90 percent of these populations and most of them were um established using a combination of cackling geese and actually greater geese um so great canada geese which are huge bodied if you see like so, so the giants maybe yeah giants okay um, that's actually the name of the subspecies, giant Canada geese. Yeah. But if you see like an actual, like 100% original 
seed population. These birds are huge. They are easily twice the size. Anyway, so they made really good, resilient, established populations. Um, and in Tennessee, I mean, there's lowland rivers, there's valleys. It's a beautiful country. Cookville is actually sandwiched between half a dozen natural areas, and there's waterfalls coming out your ears. And um, as far as urban development goes, there's also a lot of ag. So, like, there is potentially limitless forage for geese. And there's also a bunch of water there. So, like, there should be more geese than there are because biologically speaking, they have everything they need almost yeah. year round, but they don't, which is weird. Because they're some social behavioral controls yeah. potentially. Yeah. Well, I, I sort of started, um, not when I did my graduate work on, but I, I started kind <laughs> of, um, when I was at Humboldt state, there's an interesting population of Canada geese <laughs> in, northwestern california where they took a bunch of birds that they that were problem urban birds in reno nevada and they gathered them up this time of year so early june when they're molting and they captured them and they brought them to humboldt county and started a little population which was like a couple thousand birds and like in your situation just so happened there was a researcher this dr jeff black that's studied geese all over the world. He's like, well, of course I'm going to study these, you yep. know? So this was in, I think the late nineties, early two thousands, they're putting these birds out and there's, there's a couple thousand of them. And he, like your advisor was convinced that, you know, they're, they're here year round. We see them, but they're going other places and they're pretty mobile. And so they started banning them, started putting net collars on them and, um, ended up finding the same thing that, you know, these birds are moving all over the place. And he's also a behaviorist and was looking at lots of different behavioral things with them. Um, but also finds that, I mean, a whole bunch of them for their, what's called a molt migration end up going all the way to Canada. And which is wild because everyone's like, well, you know, there's geese here year round. They're just, they don't leave. But you know, when, when one is banded somewhere and then a whole bunch of them are shot in Alberta, it's pretty much proof that they were in Alberta. Yep. So geese are such interesting things. I ended up studying uh, Aleutian cackling geese for my graduate work. Cool. So, um, and uh, I really, I'll tell you what, I actually went to Humboldt State. My dream was to study uh, Pacific Brant, Black Brant. And it's just when I got there, the Aleutian goose was just being delisted. It was just kind of, they were just changing it to the Aleutian cackling goose as the they were kind of separating out the geese and it was just kind of sexy. There was a bunch of money through the five-year delisting process. And so there was a bunch of people studying Aleutians and it was like, this is where the money is. So that's, <laughs> we'll talk about that later about money, but that's one of the things you learn as a biologist that you kind of got to follow what, what is sexy in biology at the time to mm -hmm. sort of follow some of the funding. Yeah. Painfully true. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about uh, you ended up out west and some of the work that you've been doing here in Washington, and, and and we'll definitely love to talk about what you're currently doing. So I came out here and started working on a field crew in Moses Lake, which is eastern Washington, on a reservoir that had just a basalt island. Um, it was a result of damming, and it's along the Columbia, so it's habitat for migrating water birds, specifically the Katy, the Caspian Tern. Its abbreviation is Katy. Mm -hmm. um, and then also a bunch of gulls. So um, Bird Research Northwest is a project that's been going on for 20 years. And I came in at the second to last year of the field data, field data management. 
Um, so my job was to live in the desert and monitor this island and this reservoir for water birds. So we did surveys twice a day. We ended up sleeping on the island for a month and a half. Um, and we were there putting up passive dissuasion. How big is this island? Uh, it's like a quarter mile, like a square quarter mile. <laughs> yeah, and we covered the whole thing in like roping and flagging to give the illusion of vegetation. Yeah. It took weeks. Oh, um, man. And it's smelly, too. Like, it's a, it's a bird, like, graveyard by the time you're done. Oh, yeah. That is one thing I think people do not realize is how smelly the seabirds are. It is gross. So, um, was this part of, because of some work that they did, like, at the mouth of the Columbia River, they, they ended up hurting some Caspian tern habitat, so they had to create some elsewhere? Was that part of that study? Like, right? Because they ended up doing that in Nevada and California where they would create these little islands and they had to like create some habit and in, in Tule Lake I think they made this floating mound for them of these like foam things and they had a little island out in um in the Warner Valley of Oregon where that island was like the size of this house and they had like a little blind on it and people had to live in that little blind during the day. Is that the kind of thing you did? They're all they're all connected. Bridge mm-hmm. Northwest is, is specific to the Columbia. But uh-huh. yeah, so um are you familiar with East Sand Island? Mm-hmm. Okay, no. so it's it's a dredge spoil island in the mouth of the Columbia. Okay, that that is what I was thinking of. Yes, I just didn't yeah. know the name. So, Katie's are endemic to the Columbia River, but with all the damming, a lot of their habitat was flooded, and so um, and then like as a result of the damming and monitoring the river, they create a lot of dredge spoil islands. So, what you have was a typical reduction in habitat, and then a concentration of the population along the Columbia, which is bad when that's how you're trying to produce your salmon smolt and salmon are king in the pacific northwest and that's where you kind of start butting heads is when you've got it was cormorants right cormorants and yes and uh, terns are sitting there amongst other things the seals or sea lions and like basically it's like running the gauntlet for these for these salmon that already have enough issues yeah, and they did, so they did a five-year study at the beginning of Bird Research Northwest, or beginning of RTR, the company that it works for, um, their involvement, and they studied what birds were eating, and the Caspian tern ate more salmon, like they were targeting the salmon, than any of the species combined. I mean, the proportion was just ridiculous. And they did, so there was a lot of work with the cormorants and stuff, um, but that ended up really bad. They did, they invested like 15 years in monitoring these double-crested cormorants, and then the U.S. Corps of Engineers, or the Army Corps of Engineers, just came in and culled a couple thousand of them to satisfy the public. So, anyway, it's a very complicated issue because of the salmon, but... But it got you a job. Oh, heck, yeah, it got me a job, and then it got me a promotion, so... <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, so this is this is something I just saw this the other day, and I don't know if you've seen this, but someone sent me the link to a YouTube video of... Uh, I believe it's a Caspian tern is flying into a little pond and it's just fishing and it dives down to go after a fish and a Canada goose is protecting its territory, just like we were, we were talking about. <laughs> and it actually flies up, gets on this thing and attacks the tern and drowns it on the YouTube video. And I was just, she right now she's dropping her jaw. And I, I dropped my jaw when I saw this too because oh, I know, no. you know, they're known for, especially like mute swans are known for like chasing off little kids at the park. They're and, aggressive. You know, super aggressive around defending their territory. But just this kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, this is like, I'm watching a murder scene right now. And it happens really fast too. And 
you've you've obviously handled and captured a lot of Canada geese. Yeah. I think one of the people that things that people don't know is that they're unbelievably strong and powerful and their their feet, their claws are like little razor blades. Oh yeah, she's showing me some scars. Yeah. And and I will say that the scars generally come from beginner's experience. Like the first few times you do it until you really learn to handle them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll see people that are new to a crew of, of capturing Canada geese and they will they will they will look like they got you know, drug track lines up and down their arms. And uh, once you do learn how to handle them, you're, you kind of get that under control. But I just, they're, they're un, much stronger than you think, and you don't really realize until you know it. You know, there's this, this idea of this wing spur. There's this little teeny bone at the end of the wing. And I just, I just can't believe how effective they are at just, boom, popping that elbow out right in your face. And, you, and it hurts. Oh. It's not like, it's not like getting punched in a bar fight but it, you definitely <laughs> feel it oh my god that's true yeah so um tell me so this thing that i have never really got to talk a ton about channeled scablins and your pseudo boss is always ditching coming on my podcast matt mm-hmm. wilson and i gotta get him on here someday but let's talk a little bit about this gig that you got now with some history and what's what's going on with that what is the channeled scablins so the channeled scablins is the name for a series of, um, basically, it's bedrock corrugations mm-hmm. in the landscape. So when we think of channeled scablins, we're thinking of like very stark um, plateaus that just drop into these huge valleys. And it's all basalt because this area, like geographically, you know, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, it's very young geology. So there's not a lot of topsoil as a result of the decay and the erosion of the bedrock. So when you look at a map, um, and you look at my sections, my managed sections of Channel Scoutland specifically, you can totally see the outline without having the actual GIS data displayed because there are these huge, I mean, it looks like somebody spilled water um, on a sand bed and you just see like these water lines. And it's ideal wetland habitat for part of the year, but it's also in a desert step habitat. So it's this very interesting, like, for those of you who are listening, familiar with the prairie pothole region, I'm sure you are because you're bird hunters. The prairie pothole region is also the result of like receding glaciation. Um, like glaciers left a bunch of topsoil and created a bunch of potholes that created wetlands. In the channeled scablands, it's very similar to that. But instead of like a series of receding glaciers that created these potholes, it was several really strong water events that broke away the water and that broke away the bedrock. And so part of the year, you have a desert climate. I mean, it's always a desert climate, but you have a desert topography. And part of the year, you had like seasonal flooding where these channels and these ponds are very deep. And so it's ideal habitat for everything from, you know, dabblers. We have a lot of pintails. That's one of the northern pintails are one of the major species we manage for. But you also have um, a significant number of golden eyes and ruddy ducks and um, buffalo heads. So talk, talk to me about so the, this uh, Lake Missoula, right? Was that, and that yeah. was behind the glacier mm-hmm. and that broke out? Is that how, and that's what caused this? Yeah, so um, they're the fault that the North American continent and the Pacific continent um, tectonic plates are slowly rotating um, over created a series of 16 large... Um, volcanic flows so if you look at like 
um, Lake Lenore, you know, you see these lines in the basalt and they're very clear lineations um, from different lava flows. So mm -hmm. that's a really good starting place for the Missoula floods because you wouldn't get this kind of reaction to just anyone. Like a giant flood won't have this reaction everywhere. But you had a lot of very young, thick, like two miles worth of um, rapidly cooling basalt. So the Missoula floods were a result. There were six of them. I think there were seven. Yeah, there were seven. Um, where you had a huge glacier that also happened to coincide with a dam, a natural ice dam. And so instead of what happened in the prairie pothole region, which was at the recession of the Wisconsin glaciation, you had a very slow series of floods. You had several large flooding events as a result of the Missoula. So it's a huge ice dam. It's a part of the glacier, but the glacier is melting in sections. And then when the dam breaks, you have this huge outflow that covers an entire state size area in a matter of hours. Well, I will say that it, we'll talk about this later, why this might be related, but it's so cool to meet someone that knows about the birds, but also what's <laughs> happening on the ground and underneath the ground and some of the history of what created this area. And I want to say that I think in 2006 was the first time that as a biologist, I came I was on my way up to Canada to go band geese and I was like, I'm going to like Moses Lake and potholes. Like I'm going to see potholes reservoir, like on the way I picked up this truck, um, in, uh, Portland. I flew into Portland, picked up a, a work truck to, to go up there. And so I'm like, this kind of on the way, I'm going to go see it. And I just, I was so excited. And then you get there and you're like, the hell is this? So I, I grew up in Utah on the edge of the Great Salt Lake in a big mm. wetland ecosystem, my dad was a waterfowl biologist there, and it's just like, I know what wetlands look like. And you get there, and you're like, this is like cheatgrass and rocks and gravel, and then there's some water out here. Like, <laughs> this is not, what the heck is this, you know? And so it, it is so different. And then after, you know, of course, decade later, living, end up moving up here and living here and hunting and birding out in the same area. It's just gorgeous, and I love the channels, the Evans, but... The first time you show up, it's kind of, I guess I would say it was similar to, I don't know if anyone's ever been to the to the Big Island of Hawaii, but you know, you think you know what Hawaii looks like, and you land in the Big Island, and if you land on the Kona side, it looks like southern Idaho. It's like lava rock and cheatgrass, and you're like, what the heck is this? This isn't Hawaii. They took me to like lava hot springs, you know? What the heck is this? And so... Um, I feel like when I got to Moses Lake, I was kind of like, man, I don't know about this, you know, but it is. So I know a little bit of the history of this. So the joint Intermountain Western Venture, which I'm the state co-chair of, um, you know, before I even got here, so it must have been in like 2014 or 15, they, they, they used to have something, these uh, challenge cost share sort of grants that they would give out. And that's where some of the funding came for your position in this and this, uh, it was um, called capacity building. So it was like, if we if we can get just a little bit more capacity, like a temporary position for a few years to either create, you know, collect some data, like in your case, um, that would help us to move the needle of habitat conservation on the ground. And so by collecting data for a lot of reasons, um, uh, would help us get funding and prioritize where we want to do good habitat projects. And so that's why everyone was on board for this and that's how this money came about. But what is it that you are actually doing? 
here in this channel scab. Actually, talk a little bit about the, the area of the channel scab lens that you cover and what you're doing. So my position is primarily to take the data that was existing and the data that will exist from the next year, the final year of data collection and tell a story so that we can prioritize landowners that we want to recruit for restoration efforts. So the Intermountain West Joint Venture, um, according to my Ducks Unlimited mentor in this region, has been restoring the public lands in partnership with the BLM and basically any public government organization for like upwards of two decades. Yep. So most of the public land that we can go in as a government agency and like fix up for sage grouse, waterfowl, whatever, has already been done or already has like a land agreement management. Right, so Turnbull Refuge has lots of great work done on it and the right. Swanson Lakes, um, that Lake Creek system, lots and lots of great work on some of the BLM land there and, and state land. So they've done a bunch of cool things. Um, yeah, I actually had an interview with uh, Mike Finch about Swanson Lakes. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Anyway, um, so they had these three years of data, um, and then this past year was a fourth year of data. And my job is to take it all, because no one has the time, and to sort through it, organize it into a database that any organization involved with the West Joint Venture and the Channeled Scablands can access and then tell their own story, but also to summarize it. So, like, there are promises made with the grant. And... Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm going to be targeting where some of these specific populations are being observed and then intersecting that GIS layer with a map of private lands that haven't been restored yet and being like, this is a list of the priority areas. Go talk to those people. I'll go talk to them. What do we need to tell them? What do we need to show them to um, you know, recruit them for restoration? So let's step back a little bit because we haven't told the whole full story very well, but um, uh, what is it that you're counting and how are you counting and in what time of year and what, what, what data are we even talking about? So waterfowl surveys, specifically um, ducks and geese in the beginning and end of their spring migration. So when is that? When is the spring migration? February through the beginning of May. It so, kind of depends. So it's over now. We're kind of at the end of it. Yes. Um, typically our data is Usually the window is like end of February, like February 20th through April 24th. Um, and we have routes. We have six routes, over 400 driving miles. Um, there are a couple sites like Audubon Lake and Reardon, Washington. And then there are 21 observation sites in Turnbull Refuge itself. So volunteers or staff people will go and drive the route and just record every duck or goose that they see and then record on what kind of wetland habitat, which is subjective to the observer and to the time of day and to the time of year, but they'll record where they saw the goose, where they saw the duck, how many there were, on what kind of wetland, and then finish the route. And then we do that for every route and site visit once a week for roughly 12 weeks out of the year in the springtime. And so let's talk about, and so that's the driven route. And then there's also, they're also flying and counting. Yes. So there are also aerial surveys and the two kinds of routes. So it's a dual survey system and they were originally designed to quantify two different things about the landscape and population. So the aerial surveys, I mean, we have breeding pair surveys as well, which are universally done across the United States and all flyways, which are just when geese and ducks are pairing up in the springtime, which would be about now. We just finished them up last week. Um, how many are pairing up to breed? 
Well, before they do that, they actually are in the middle of their migration, getting to find each other and stuff. So um, we do aerial surveys. There are transects that bisect um, the Channel Scablands and the Turnbull Wetlands, which are about 1.8 million acres. Um, it takes about six hours to do the whole survey, but we literally just fly up and down and count all the birds that we see. Um, I am, I use photos and image counting to quantify those. Um, and that's just trying to get like across the landscape, how many birds are there? And then the ground surveys are, you know, what wetlands are they on when we do see them? So how, f how, how, um, far off the ground are you flying? What kind of plane are you in? Are you in like a little teeny plane? Um, yeah, it's a tiny little fixed wing aircraft. It's usually um, two biologists and the pilot. We're under 3,000 feet. Yeah. Or under 30,000 feet. Um, we're not very high off the ground. When they do the helicopter surveys for like BPOP, uh -huh. they're a lot closer to the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so um, this is kind of silly, but why does it even matter? Like, why is it important? to be counting these birds in the spring. Why, how is this going to help us? So in the west, in the Intermountain West, there are only two areas that have been doing these kinds of surveys, specifically in the springtime. So everyone knows that, you know, duck hunting is, you know, whatever time of year, but... It's in the fall, yeah. Right. Um, and that's post-breeding. That's when, like, the, the drakes and ganders are leaving. Or the, not the ganders, but the drakes are leaving. Um... The spring migration is very important to the stopover habitat, which when birds are moving across their migratory pattern, whichever direction they're going, they have to stop and fuel up. And so it's really important for them to arrive in their breeding habitat in good breeding condition. So they need areas like the prairie potholes and the child scablands that seasonally are flooded and provide the inverts and the granivorous forage that they need to fuel up to survive it and to make you know, a healthy clutch of little ducklings. Yeah, and this, and my uh, graduate advisor who was studying in Europe, you know, he called it this, this the green wave of digestibility where the geese are working their way north just as these new little green shoots are popping up and you really see it with snow geese. It's like, they don't mess around. As soon as the snow melts and there's something green coming up, they're moving north, they're moving north and they're moving south the same, you know, sort of, well, as they're moving north, they're, they're hitting the, that freshest, greenest growth. And I think this is really interesting. So I just, the last podcast that I actually published was about Sonic, which is mm -hmm. Southern Oregon, Northeastern California, and um, with Ed Contreras. Um, and he, uh, he is studying an ecosystem that basically in, in the early 2000s, they did this, a similar study, and they started keeping track of birds. Now, in addition to what we've talked about, they down there were putting a bunch of um, telemetry equipment on female pintails. And you guys have been putting out some telemetry uh, markers on some of the birds here. I know because I've been part of some of those captures for the last several years. So do you know some of the story behind what's going on with some of that stuff? I know that we have that data and that it is one of the reasons we're making the argument to continue in 2020 because so we do we capture there's a few sites around the channel scablands that have landowners that let us um, rocket net 
and then capture band and mark some of these birds. If we don't find them on the ground, they do sometimes, you know, Matt Wilson has done it from the air, radio telemetry to find how much they're moving and how long they're actually staying within the channeled scablands. That's useful for the radio telemetry tag specifically because that gives us a window of like pristine occupancy. So we can quantify the number of waterfowl use days, but also now we know like, are they staying within the same, you know, area? Are they staying within a larger area, a smaller area? And you know, they're, they're usually around for two to four weeks, but we know that because of the radio telemetry. And then there are also some satellite tags that have been put out on pintails. And, and every year there's about eight that are still active, um, give or take, you know, ones that don't come back. But we know also that they're going all the way to Alberta, to the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge, um, down to the coast of Oregon and California. We know that they're going up and we know they're going down. Well, I think it's interesting. I know part of that, Dr. Steve Hayes um, at Gonzaga University has been helping with that. And um, they, they actually went up, I know, to Alberta and kind of checked out some of the nest sites. But I think that the really cool thing is, and how this correlates to Sonic, is that you're collecting data that is going to be used to show basically how important the channel scab ones are. Because really, that's, Sonic wasn't, it wasn't thought of that important because when we looked at the Pacific Flyway, it was like, well, we've got the Central Valley, that's where all the ducks go, ducks and geese go to eat and forage, and we know, you know, oh, the Willamette Valley is important to the cackling geese, and, you know, this area is important, this and that. So this spring staging is kind of a more of a new thing that's really being looked at, like how important it is, and I think that I know that there has been struggles with um, Ducks Unlimited and with the joint venture of getting funding for the channel scavens. And when you apply for a grant for wildlife work, for like the work you're trying to do, but also for the habitat work, um, when you apply for a grant, it really, really helps. It, you can kick butt in a NACA grant, a North American Wetland Conservation Act, with these million dollar, you know, $2 million grants really. Um, if you have great data, you say, okay, this is the number, you know, we have been collecting this data for five years. This is how many birds, this is all, you know, having this really good data as opposed to saying, yeah, there's lots of ducks and geese here, which <laughs> is kind of what we had to say before this. And so this data set will be super valuable. It'll also be valuable to my former agency, um, the Natural Resource Conservation Service. So they're doing, <clears throat> excuse me, as private lands, wetland restoration, targeting, um, places to maybe put easements on the ground, you know, and having these basically sort of general circles on a map of saying these are these are the most important areas during this time frame. And this is something I think is important to, to note for the for the channel scablins is that, you know, for bird hunter type people is that channel scablins is not that great in fall. It's it's the show is in the spring. It's like the last couple months is incredible. But in the fall things have dried up. A lot of these potholes are deep and so they still have water in the fall but they're not like up in the shallows with lots of food and lots of available stuff so there are some of the bigger systems and as you know you get into the columbia basin more yeah there's some there are um the columbia river system there's all kinds of waterfowl hunting but channel scavlins themselves the interesting thing you don't see a tons of pintails here in the fall in the spring i mean you drive i drive down i-90 or highway 395 and loaded with pintails the last month or two so um this is going to be we're really excited to have you and and super excited to have you um 
have someone that's organizing this data because there's one of the things as a biologist, especially I think as you learn as you move up in your career, they just keep piling more and more things on you and you just, you have to start cutting something out and guys like, you know, the people that you work with, Matt Wilson and Kyle Spragans, they have like 99,000 other job duties and so to sit down and like focus on one project that's kind of like a mini master's project as I'm sure you're aware is is really difficult to do. <coughs> Now I want to I want to switch topics just a little bit unless you had something else on on well, scablins. I, I did okay. just want to make yeah, yeah. a comment that um, so we are in a weird sort of competition with Sonic and um, <laughs> Southern Oregon and not competition like it's not direct. they're winning don't worry right <laughs> and to make the argument that we are important and we are almost exactly one fifth side of the size of Sonic, but they've only been doing, they only did the spring waterfowl surveys in 2002 and 2003. We've been doing them every year since 2016 and we're going to do a final year in 2020. So not only do we have like more, and I talked to Josh, Josh Vest on the phone after uh -huh. the feds were reinstated. Um, and I was asking him questions like, I want to compare this, you know, I want to make the argument that like, we do need to keep doing this because we're so valuable geographically. We're also more farther north and we are closer to the prairie potholes. So we're, we're a good stopover area for a lot of populations. And he was just like, I don't, Victoria, I don't really have any of those numbers for you. Like, I know that we did them and I can send you those numbers, but they, they haven't done these kinds of studies. So here's the thing is that they have over 35 years of Klamath Basin just the basin every year they do um the surveys in the fall right right so they have mega data still applying for grants that's what's beating us is that we don't have that layer of data that they have because so they only did this little thing in the spring and then they've done it a few times since obviously um but uh uh that is the thing that's sort of knocking the ball out of the park is the fact that they just they they fly like every week from September through like February. No, oh, geez. Yeah, for like thirty five years, that's maybe brutal. more. So that's hard to compete with. We're back on. Um, so you're in a little bit of a competition with uh, um, Sonic. Right, and Sonic gets a lot of the NACA grants, and they do have this huge repository of almost four decades of fall surveys, but, you know, the Channel Scablands, we are still one of the 13 critical wetlands in the Intermountain West, and, well, they have four decades of fall surveys, we're about to have five seasons of um, spring surveys, you know, because we are valuable and... Um, the wetlands are just becoming more and more drained and more and more critical to conservation. So Sonic has its large area and it's lots and lots of funding and it's annual um, fall flights, but Channel Skylands has us. You know, I, it's interesting. So I just moved down to sort of the northeastern corner of, of Sonic, living in Burns now, and just, I was just driving up here a couple of days ago and, uh, it's this flood irrigated ecosystem. So um, a lot of the reasons that so much of the show there in the spring is different. It's basically, you know, they're diverting waters out of rivers and flooding them across ag lands. 
and it is impre- incredible right now like around driving around my house is every kind of bird you can imagine and then it's like flooding out across the sagebrush like it's it's kind of a funny manipulated system and one of the huge concerns there is this idea of you know if you are more efficient you put things in pipes you put out um, emitters onto a pivot system it uses much less water but has way less value to water birds and wildlife and so some mega concerns down there, but I'm excited for the data that, that you guys are collecting and organizing. And um, it just, it, it, takes, it takes a lot to build that kind of data set to have value so that we can, we can have somewhere to go for um, with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, with picking easements, doing that kind of stuff. So It's interesting. Sometimes it's very tedious, but it's, it's interesting work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk, uh, switch subjects a little bit to about, uh, you are an interesting guest for me because you actually know what a podcast is and you have your own podcast. Yeah. And what's your, what's your podcast? It's called Rockcast Podosophy. It's a play on the blog that it came from, which is called Rockosophy. Okay. Um, which was born from... A personal philosophy as a result of my rock hounding hobby, which out in here in the Pacific Northwest is a huge cultural phenomenon, which is not true from where I am from um, in St. Louis in the Midwest. And also the mentality out here is a lot more naturalist driven. And um, I wrote for a long time about my passion and my hobbies. And I talked to my friends and got some of my biologist friends who will definitely enjoy this episode. Um, with you to write for me about their stories but the only two people I could get to write for me were my other two blogger friends yeah (laughs) because I would sit around with my crew and I actually would talk to my crew lead and I'd be like oh like let me share your story because you know biologists we're all sitting around drinking beers and the culture of being a biologist is to a be solitary be a little you know uncomfortable around people b you're very observant about the natural world that we have that kind of intelligence and see, we're also storytellers. We're not comfortable writing it down, but like, I got so sick of like sitting around and hearing these incredible stories from all these people like cormorants and birds and I don't have to tell you. Um, and then no one, people were too shy to write it. So I started recording it. And I mean, it's a niche that's, it's a, it's a gold mine of storytelling and it's a gold mine of human connection that no one seemed to be really talking about because we can talk about our job which is very cool but it's also a lifestyle that is dictated by our job yeah and i think that's uh, we were kind of talking about this um earlier is that one of the reasons that i started my podcast was i just i wanted a podcast that um would talk about biology that would talk about what biologists do because we're terrible at telling our story we're terrible at communicating our story um and how much work that it takes i mean people are blown away by this um and i also i got flustered when i listened to other podcasts (laughs) that that didn't that, that had a bunch of stuff that wasn't facts factual you know i think i mentioned earlier but it's like as soon as they start talking about prairie chickens in Idaho and there's no prairie chickens in Idaho, like, I'm, like, I'm starting a blog. I'm starting a podcast. And the reason that I, I, I actually used to have a blog, one of my one of my uh, partners in crime, he has a blog. And the blogging thing is like a ton of work. And it's really hard to get people to 
actually sit down and read anything. Like I don't even read my buddy's blog. Don't don't tell. Oh man, he's gonna listen to this one. Um, but we don't take it personally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's just that it's like. But this for people like you and I that drive a lot, or travel, fly. Like you can listen to a podcast on the fly, and I've been shocked. Like so many people, especially um, people are super interested in the biology side of things. They're they're interested and I think they're interested in, you know, like when you talk about, well, how did you capture a goose? You know, what do you mean geese can't fly? You know, and there's so there's all these parts of things that people kind of don't they don't know all the pieces of the puzzle. But the other part is is you're right. So we have this lifestyle that we give up a lot of things to do. Um uh you know the this insane amount of school to become a biologist. And on top of that, honestly, if you're not kind of one of the best at what you do, your specific thing, you're not even going to get a job. And you're only going to get that job if you did like the intern level, you know, really low paying job for a few years. Um, and uh, it, it, it can be pretty daunting, I think. And it's like if you miss miss an opportunity, I always tell this is that like you – you, you and I, let's say we're in undergrad together and it's we're both freshman year and uh, we both apply for a job at the local refuge and I get it. And then you end up going back home and working, whatever, at the hardware store that your cousin owns. And then the next summer, I, we apply for a different job together. We both apply and I get that job because I already had one more field season than you. And it's just, it's like you can never catch up. I mean, and so it's it's extremely competitive. Honestly, if, especially if you stay in waterfowl, um, every job that you apply for from now on, you'll probably know 90% of the other applicants. I mean, it's just it's an extremely small pool. Um, I don't think, well, Matt, your kind of supervisor right now, I had a job and then he had that job the next year. And um, Matt's supervisor, Kyle, I know we both have applied for jobs, the same job. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's competitive and it's like you're kind of competing against your friends too. So the thing that really bugs me, I love telling this story, is that my, my brother, um, he works at Chili's, the restaurant, <laughs> and he has since like high school. And it's it's like a good high school job. It's not something that I think of as a career. But remember, it was only a few years after high school. He gets like a manager position and is making $60,000 a year as a manager. And I think they pay his, they like pay his uh, uh, car bill, like 400 bucks a month to have to drive, make sure he drives a nicer car. And I think right now, at least his schedule is something like he's only on three weeks and then off a week. And then on three weeks, and it's like, you got to be kidding me. We go through years and years. You go through undergrad, and you have to do well at it. You go through master's, you have to do well at it. In the summers and every spare inch of your career, you need to be maximizing networking. You need to be um, uh, doing some side publication, writing writing for a magazine, doing all these, these extracurricular activities and kick and butt and be a good personality that gets along with people that doesn't think too much of themselves but isn't too quiet to not speak up and me it's like holy crap and then we'll give you a job that pays thirty two thousand dollars a year and you'll be proud because you make more than most of your friends yeah yeah it's a multifaceted issue and i really start so i started writing because i wanted to give us a voice because this, we are super uncomfortable with the humanities. And there was even a class in my undergrad called 
rural sociology, which a bunch of the foresters were like required to take because you have to like develop these skills to do this job. Um, and it's absolutely a rat race and it's uncomfortable. And that makes it like, I don't know if you experienced this, but I've talked to a lot of people who are also in graduate school and the sciences are like that. I mean, people are, I mean, it's a cutthroat world and you have to be okay with that. And it's really uncomfortable for me. Um, and a lot of my friends and I'm one of the few that got out of undergrad and masters that ended up sticking with the biology thing. Like my other friend who is a biologist, who's actually a bird biologist in the Midwest, um, he went into a PhD because he couldn't find a job that he wanted. And number one way to end up in a PhD, I mean, it's a recession. <laughs> Crap, I can't get a real job. I might as well get my doctorates. Yeah. And then, you know, yeah, it's a real problem. And then my other friend um, who's brilliant, who I worked with in uh, East Sand Island, you know, she ended up becoming a teacher. And a lot of us do that. And we, we have talks. We were just talking yesterday, you know it's you give up a lot of things like you you encounter this all the time you talk to someone just on the street and they're like what do you do for a living i'm a biologist and their immediate reaction is oh that's so cool yeah and they have a bunch of questions like you're cool you have a cool job but then you're trying to make a doctor's appointment because you got to get your script refilled and they can't work with your schedule and you're like you don't understand i'm only going to be in this city in this state for this week yeah like and you know you move around so much that like the insurance companies you have to move your address constantly you know it's it's really hard to explain our job. And I was trying to get a secured credit card from my credit union. I had to go to three different credit unions because I move around so much. They didn't trust my income. <laughs> yeah, no, that's something. In fact, I, I'm sure you have too, but I, I mean, I worked in, worked in Alaska a couple of times. I worked in North Dakota. I worked in Utah. I worked in Nevada. I worked in California. I worked in Oregon. Like you're always bouncing around trying to get that diversity and and then the sad thing is, is that the jobs that you tend to be pushed into to be more stationary and to make more money are way less cool jobs. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, it, it, it can be, it can be really frustrating, but also really rewarding. And I think there's, there's another side of it too. Um, um, I, I wouldn't speak to like a female's perspective, but my friend was explaining to me how tough it was for her she had as a biologist schedule where she was doing all this bat work and nighttime captures and that she just she didn't have a normal schedule she had to work because she was like the, the lowest level person she always had to work saturday at the refuge and so you kind of never don't have this like normal nightlife of meeting like a significant other settling down having kids because you just you know you're you're always moving around all the time you know you're all your friends stayed in you know, from high school, stayed in the same hometown and met someone and, you know, they're like, well, haven't, why haven't you settled down? It's like, well, God, I haven't slowed down enough to meet someone. And so I think that that can be a tricky aspect. And then also explaining to someone that, you know, especially I think as a female, it's like, well, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to stay in a bunkhouse with 14 dudes and uh, I'm going to be there for like seven days. And yeah, there's no cell service, so you won't hear from me. And it'll be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so I'm going to circle back to that, but there are a lot of challenges with this job that are also, um, I had an entire episode with my friend who's a criminologist in St. Louis. Oh, cool. See, and, that sounds like a cool job. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. And she's got two degrees in it and, um, it, our job is a very privileged job. Like, it's a job for cushy, middle-class white people. And until recently, it was cushy, middle-class 
male white people mm-hmm. and a lot of like our field is we're trying to there, there's definitely a cultural shift people are trying to address this but like I have lots of conversations with my coworkers. Carrie Lowe and I were having a discussion about this like you have to have because we are so like quote underappreciated or whatever you can only go into this job if you have a support network that will catch you in the off season because it is highly competitive you're not being paid enough um, and if you don't have like a house to go back to like, how are you going to support yourself? You can't, there is no room for failure. As my friend, um, the criminologist was discussing, she, she was like, yeah, you can't, if you're not, oh, basically, if you don't have that white privilege, you, there is no room for failure. There is no room to follow your passion. You can't be an artist. You can't be a biologist. You have to do the Chili's job. You know, you've got to work at a job that you know will provide you with security. And I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. Like, I'm not saying it's easy, but that's another layer to this job and you add on being a female and like, I mean, I don't shave my legs. I, I've got sunburns and scars and like, you know, my arms look like hamburger meat in the summertime because you get rashes and you get bug bites. And from a sexism perspective, I don't care about that kind of thing, but I have had to find partners who also don't care about that kind of a thing. Yep. You know, if you're used to being clean all the time and like, you know, those, you know, I know a lot of people who put on a lot of makeup to go to the gym and like, that's fine for them. But <laughs> well, coming from like, there is a cultural shift. It's not going to be like this forever, but like it, I'm safe in this profession because I am a little rough around the edges and you know, you have to be okay with that. And looking for partners, I know a lot of people in the biology, especially field biology, it's this polar opposite. You're either in a committed long distance relationship for years, right? Or you have, you're either chronically single or that comes with like chronically single, but then you use Tinder when you're on, you know, your specific field thing. There's just, it's not, we're not the standard. You have to find someone that's either going to be flexible or that understands how to work with you. Yeah. It's uh it's a tricky deal. I, we were kind of chatting about this earlier. This is funny that it's like this, at least in my undergrad group, it, it was always called, it was like inbreeders and outbreeders. It was like people who look for people that are within the natural resource field and people are like, nah, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get a nurse wife or a, uh, uh, a freaking school teacher or something that, because then I mean, actually, I would say my dad, in his era of being a biologist from the 70s through late 2000, you know, 2016 is when he retired, is that of his peers, I would say 99% of them ended up marrying teachers because it was the only wife that you could have that no matter what town you moved to, she could get a job. Yeah. And that was a really key thing. It was like, <laughs> you got to go hang out in the teaching department or whatever so that you could find someone because otherwise things get tricky. And now with much more likely dual career, it is it is kind of a mess. It's a mess of a situation to put yourself in. And Julie and I have been so lucky to be able to finally figure out a situation that we can live in the same house mm-hmm. and both have biologist jobs at the same place so it's tricky to do and and you know you have to start thinking about next move you know four years from now how are we going to do that again mm-hmm. you know so it's it is tough so rock rockosophy yeah so it's the philosophy of rocks rock hounding um i think everybody as a kid so children in general, like it's a very tactile stage of development. You know, there's most people have a stage in their childhood where they remember being really into rocks. Yeah. And for some of us, it sticks around. 
Um, and for some of us, it doesn't. But so, what do you know about rocks? Do they have any significance for you? They do. You know, it's funny is that um, by I fit into the mold of exactly what you say during an age of I would say like second through seventh grade. I was super into rocks and helped that my mom was a rock hound. Utah is geologically awesome place. Um, you know, it's like nine years old and we're out digging for geodes in the desert. Or <laughs> I was really into not exactly rocks, but fossils too. Yeah. Fossils were like money for me. And we had an incredible collection. Utah is also really good about lots of, um, I'm, I'm terrible at knowing the term of this. I've been to a million of these, but like you go to like a rock show. Yeah. Right? And it doesn't involve heavy metal or an alternative <laughs> band. It is a bunch of old white dudes with rock tumblers <laughs> and ladies with ugly jewelry. And that is how I, I mean, that was like a Saturday in August growing up in Utah. It's like you would go there, gold panning and, you know, just all the cool stuff these old guys that would just sit and talk to you about any kind of rock and they would make up stories about their rocks and they would have bullshit fake rocks and all kinds of stuff but so I, I did I had a story that when you said this was about that you were asking me to do rocks have a symbol symbologist to me is that um, I don't know the exact era but I would say like third or fourth grade I had my favorite hat of all times a beanie and we went, and we went fossil hunting. And I didn't know this at the time, but I left that hat there, fossil hunting. I took it off, got hot, and I left it on a rock. And uh, one year later, we went back fossil hunting, and I found my lost hat that I had been <laughs> destroyed my room trying to find this hat. And as you know, something sits out in the sun, it like faded really to a different color. It was like a brown hat with like a duck on it. And then on the other side, uh, now the sunny side was like light brown and the back side was dark brown still. And I found it, I put it on and I wore it for like two more years. My mom hated that hat. But so that's my like rock hounding hat story. So I, I guess my other thing that I really remember is this first time going geode hunting when it was like, this was before... You couldn't just like Google it, right? You could just Google and watch YouTube video how to do this. It was like, well, I heard that you go out there and you kind of dig like six, seven feet down and they're in this approximate area. And if you dig in the spot and you don't find one, then you just dig in a new spot. So I'm like, doing this, we're going out. We went with one of my mom's kind of wild card friends and she had a bunch of, uh, um, she always had these sort of, vagabond foster kids from all over the world and we went out in an Zuzu trooper out into the desert I remember because we had two flat tires but she had two spares because we had terrible tires and we we dig this hole with all these kids and like the first hole everyone is so excited like, we're gonna get geodes man this is gonna be awesome and there's nothing down there and then we're like wait so we gotta do this again this like, took half the day this is the stupidest thing ever and then you just see these these sort of foster kids just heading off across the desert like yeah we're out that was dumb but that was so that was my my first geode and finding your first legit geode is awesome you know you cut this thing open and want to do everything right and it's like oh my god this is so cool so that's some of my rock stuff and i wish i wish i was a better human and better biologist that understood some of um like mike rule when he talks about the channel scavenins 
he knows what's going on 200 feet under the ground and what happened you know 2,000 years ago versus 20,000 years ago and I just I kind of barely scratched the surface of that you know I, I know about the birds I know about the plants but I, I have never been as great at knowing the history and the actual sort of like he does he just he's a much more well-rounded like the actual term biologist of all biology where i'm more of like wildlifey well and it's a you have to be a jack of all trades like at, when we come back to the applying for jobs thing yeah you can highly specialize i'm doing literally almost exactly what i did for my master's degree and that is unheard of yeah but you also have to be super flexible i've also worked with skunks and small <laughs> mammals and fish and like that one time i was picking fossils out of sand like with a microscope, you have to be a jack of all trades and we're a colorful bunch, wouldn't you say? And we're storytellers inherently. That comes with the appreciation of biology. If you understand a little bit of biology or geology, you're never bored, you know? And yeah, Mike Rule, I would love to get an interview with Mike Rule. He is, to listen to him talk uh, is... So for reference, he's um, the refuge complex biologist for... Um, Turnbull, Kootenai, and um, what's the one up north? I can't think of it. Little pond, Little Pondre. No. So, but he he's been here in Chini for twenty five years and has a background. I think he's from um, did his he actually did his uh, masters on like mule deer ecology in the Great Basin. But just one of those kind of classic old school biologists that learned decided I'm going to know everything about this ecosystem from you know how the soil was formed and and the the background the history of you know continually questioning not just like okay i got this there's redheads and swans here and we got to cut down some trees here and there and add some water here and there you know so and we're changing you know this what they try to teach a lot in school is this aldo leopold philosophy of you know being able to sit down under a tree for three hours and just watch what's going on. Or Lee Fredrickson, if you've ever seen him give a talk, a famous wetland guy talks about his 10,000 hours on a bucket. Is that if you really want to understand what's going on in a wetland, you really need to spend 10,000 hours sitting out there on a bucket watching it over the years. And that is how you really learn a wetland or an ecosystem. And the way our jobs are shifting forward towards more computer, more email, more, immediate like some my boss sends me an email and she expects something immediately back and it's like it's very different than like my dad's time when you you were a biologist but you were also a warden you were also the manager you also lived at the wildlife area and sometimes you wouldn't talk to your boss for a week because you were doing stuff you know (laughs) and it's sort of a different era that we're going into now i think it's a good direction but yeah, you have to be very intentional. People in general, like the public, has to be very intentional about wanting to get wildlife exposure. And um, I think it's important. Okay, we don't have we don't have a lot of time left. Yeah, we're running out of, running out of juice here. Um, but so the overall emotion behind most of the biologists that I meet in this profession is very negative. And I'm interested about what you have to say about this, because just yesterday, before our meeting started, two of my coworkers were talking about how the culture has been irreparably irreparably damaged. And, like, no one goes outside and kids that are going to, like, outreach events are talking about how they hate just being out of the house. 
And I spend a lot of my time, I'm actually like, we're all depressed about this. We all like our job is. is to watch, our job is to record the decline of nature. But here's my thing. So I want to hear about what you had to say about that. But I come from it from an angle of like, if we're intentional about building like an eco city or like responsible involvement, there are eco cities out there. There are responsible ways to have dense populations and to sustainably manage large populations. And it just comes from a cultural shift and a, a cultural value shift, which is the value is sitting on that bucket for 10,000 hours and watching that. What's your personal philosophy about like that mentality of biology? Well, so going to sort of your first thing, which was this decline of nature. And it's, I think back to probably 20 something years ago, watching like mutuals of Omaha or National Geographic. And you watch this thing about the tiger in India and there's three left. And they're just like, you know, they're really pulling on you. Like this is, this might be the last year of the tiger, you know? And you're like, oh shit, <laughs> like this sucks. You know, I'm, I'm like nine years old and we got to save this tiger, you know? But then you look at it and you're like, man, this takes like what a year to publish. It took three years to film. Like those tigers are dead. <laughs> like this is already like, it's just, it's so, even as like an eight year old, I realized, man, this is tough. This is a tough gig. And um, some of the things, you know, there's some, there's some cheating ways to go about it. I think that the people that work in very tough, endangered species, trying to do spotted owls, trying to do condors, trying to do, you know, some fairy shrimp that no one's ever heard of, you know. And, and this is your life, right? You're writing these biological um, documents that are determining the fate of this species in some case. And I feel for those guys, but that is not that is not a direction that I wanted to go, you know. And so the cheating way a little bit around some of that is things like waterfowl. I mean, people talk about the hunting side of things like, oh, the good old days. And like you were talking about, you know, with giant Canada geese that were really in decline in the in the east. Um, nobody can say good old days for a lot of the geese now because there's more geese than there ever was, you know. <laughs> some of the waterfowl numbers. They're incredible. It might not be as good hunting in the place that you grew up hunting, but the waterfowl numbers are, a lot of the species are doing really well. Things like scop and pintails and some of the diving birds are, are you know, not doing as well. But, um, so working on those, and now, you know, I, I worked on sage grouse and sharp-tailed grouse, which are basically endangered species here in Washington. I mean, their numbers are very low, and so I worked on them for about three years, and it's a, it's a, tough it's a much tougher deal you know when you're starting to deal with a lek that has so little attendance that there's just there's not there's there's hardly you know you can just you can watch it one more one more plowed up piece of of grass and that lek is gone you know and so that can be negative and i can see how it's so easy for biologists to be sitting around and to get negative and for you to let it get you down and you know i just switched to an agency that's in a funny way the national wild turkey federation there where the opposite direction, you know, we did really good at dumping turkeys all over the place <laughs> and they're super successful. And honestly, where I live now and, you know, I mean, where, where we're talking from here in Spokane, they're seen as like, 
vermin. Yeah. yeah, there's so many turkeys. And there are, I know, there are turkeys. It's like I'm driving down the freeway and there's one strutting in the media. And the other day I was like, oh my goodness. But so, you know, a lot of the aspects of things that I work with are the opposite end of that, where it's like too many turkeys or too many geese is what I studied my graduate work on, you know, depredating the fields. But also part of, I think big part of me and my interest in switching jobs was this other, in a way, really depressing thing. I'm big time bird hunter, bird dog guy. That's why big part of the reason that having this podcast is that I want to help with, you know, thinking about the concepts of how to recruit hunters. And some of my best podcasts have been talking about, you know, these other, there's a really cool movement right now where people like your age that might not even be into hunting, they want natural organic food and they, they want to get it themselves. They want to teach themselves how to do this. And so there's this awesome opportunity to sort of bring more hunters in the fold and people can hunt for, way different reasons than I grew up hunting and you might, you know, want to eat food and, you know, I, I, I could care less, but, but having a job that actually part of your job title helps with that is a big deal. And it's a huge deal to me. I'm not going to get on the soapbox of it too much, but in that where our funding comes from for wildlife biology stuff, yeah, a lot of it has historically came from hunters and all those hunters you know, if you if you if you do basic math, which I'm not a real mathematician guy, basic math, you see that these baby boomers, when they sort of retire out of the hunting world, and we have these next, you know, Gen X, and then especially millennials, and we have so few hunters that no one's paying into the pot anymore. Where does this money come from? And we've been we've been talking about this since I since I can remember, since the first wildlife society meeting I went to in 1999. They were like, this is a big deal. We need to start figuring something out. And we've done literally nothing to figure that problem out. And that is depressing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big pot. And I'm, I'm one of the Bambi generation. But I've also talked to people in my office about going out and getting into hunting, even though I wouldn't want to. Anyway, conversation for a different time. You're talking about a real problem. like, And it's people are afraid of hunting, but they're okay with having guns that are it, it's very confusing for me yeah they're they're bad hunting but having a personal firearm that you pick up a pawn shop is okay it's <laughs> very confusing for me well uh, you know <laughs> I, people probably wouldn't like me saying this necessarily but i could care less about guns if i didn't have hunting what would be the point for me to even have a gun like and, and other people most of i think the hunters that sit more on this heavily republican line they're like they're like, well, I, I mean, guns are more important to me than hunting, you know. But to me, I'm like, well, if I had no, if there was no wildlife left, I, I don't even need a gun. I don't even need it. So, um, well, let's let's chat. Just let's just circle back a little bit because I want to cover some t- some something else. Is it is it, uh, you know, you, you hit on this idea of diversity and getting sort of women into the workplace and getting you know other diverse cultures and you kind of were talking about that you know you kind of have to have this safety net and I mean I really saw that one of the things that I especially saw is in grad school I tell a story that I've I've told before is I'm sitting around in grad school and we're all getting ready for a Christmas break and it's just your grad lab so that would be just basically for for those of you um that wouldn't know this um you know, it's just the people that your one advisor is mostly in charge of. So it's going to be like anywhere from like three to 20 people, but usually it's like five or seven or something. And so I'm sitting around with my grad lab and I'm like, oh, what's everybody doing for Christmas? And it's like, oh, I'm going to Peru and oh, we're headed to Africa and oh, we're headed, you know, to we're going to go down to Florida and then we're going to head up to Maine. 
And I'm just like looking around and they're like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, man, I, I might drive back to Utah and see my dad, you know? Like, And I'm just like, I feel like, and, and I look around the room and I'm like, I have the best funded project and I actually have a job of all these people. Okay. So their money is not necessarily coming from what we're doing here in grad school. And that, that was a huge moment for me to kind of realize, oh, okay, like this is really different. And it's different than undergrad because there's a lot of people in undergrad who work at McDonald's, you know, yeah. to, to get through. But in my career with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, I've seen huge push to try to get diversity in. And there are people who, certain cultures of people that just, they don't see natural resource as a really good career. They just don't. You know, people from the South are just kind of like, nah, that's not really a great career. You look at, if you look around, if you go into any, I would say anywhere in the nation, in the United States, you go into any office, there'll be somebody from the upper Midwest, like Minnesota, Wisconsin, like all those people that is seen as natural resource career is seen as that's like being the president. I mean, it's like, that is a good career. That's like a doctor, a lawyer, you know, that's a really good career. And you'll see that across your the rest of your career. You'll bump into tons of people from the upper Midwest because it's seen as a good career. I think that that shift would help us get more diversity and get more positive sort of diversity of thought. Not necessarily just – it's not necessarily about skin color, race, or whatever. But diversity of thought is very valuable to have. Um, and, and, you know, people that put on makeup before they go to the gym, that kind of thing. That's fine. <laughs> if it works for you, but it's also, that's, a, it's a cultural stamp. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And there's, there's sort of some, so there's, there's some work to be done and that's, that's where, so you get into this world where you start like being really depressed. And right now I'd say Washington the last couple of years has been uber depressing as a female in the workplace because the state... Uh, WDFW, which you basically work for now, I mean, they're like big cheese, got caught doing some stupid shit, sexual harassment, and then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, like, are the leader of Washington's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He got caught doing some stuff, two female employees, and it was just like, I'm like, good God, these guys are, these guys are making all white males look horrific, which we are not all horrific, I mean, mostly, but, um, uh, and it's just, it's not making things, it's not improving things. And when you have these bad apples, it just, it, it, it freaking destroys the whole pond. And that has been watching that frustration within WDFW and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service seeing this kind of like building this void, which is also being made theoretically by the president and things going on in politics beyond that. I don't talk about politics in my in my podcast, but this does bug me. It really bugs me. Uh, if you're a dude out there, keep your dick in your fucking pants. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also about having these kinds of conversations. So, like, yeah, like, yeah, please, please do that. Please keep all of your genitals <laughs> in your pants. Um, consent is very important, all right? That's not important. It's necessary. But also, like, you and I are sitting down. We're not in competition right now. How many times have you been in a room with other biologists and it's, like, it's a weird pissing contest? Doesn't matter. Like, let's just take gender and race out of it and, like, put those issues aside. Literally, professionally, we're all, like, trying to one-up each other. And that's not – it's not healthy. And if you're not competitive – like, I'm not a competitive person. So, like, I wasn't big into sports because I don't like that culture. But it's very competitive, you know? So, like – people can sit down and have a conversation about these topics and especially like even more sensitive topics. And as long as we're all like 
communicating and agree to try and move forward as a field of biology, like, we just need to take care of each other. Like, why isn't there a house for wayward biologists during the off-season? Why don't we have a society that supports the profession for those who can't, you know, who don't have a rich family to send them to Peru to get the field experience? Like, <laughs> why aren't we doing these socially aware things? We're just leaving. It's always, like, every man for himself, except when we bond over something. Like, when we go birding together, that's okay. But, like, you know, I think that sucks, man. Like, we gotta support each other. Yeah, there's there's a lot of frustrating things that happen and, and a lot of opportunities. But I think it's it's good, you know, I just I just went on this capture for these sharp tail grouse with your organization, WDFW, where we're translocating them back down. They're kind of some hurt populations. And hanging out with these guys, I was hanging out with a bunch of tribal biologists and a bunch of um, folks that are more like stuck in the office biologists and an area manager and then a research scientist and just sitting around chatting with those guys for 10 minutes just it just like that kind of stuff rejuvenates me like this is why we're doing this like this makes sense we're doing something getting up in the morning being out on the lack and capturing these birds it's just it reminds you what you're supposed to be doing and kind of refocus when you see other people with passion mm-hmm. and excitement and, it, and it's tough because I look at I really shouldn't and I'd like to get off of Facebook but I look at these forums and I mean WDFW will do something or for example right now there's this um wolf delisting thing that's going on oh yeah and uh I mean it's just and 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 3,000 people will all make these comments and and oftentimes facts are so limited and it's just it's so frustrating because I'm like man I want to answer that like I'm like I'm holding my hands out like I'm going to start typing right now but it's just I just, you just want to shut your mouth because it's like, ah, oh, that's not my place. But whose place is it if it's not ours? And then it's, then you just sound like this like crazy, more environmentalist. And there's nothing wrong. I'm happy that there's people that within my profession that lean more towards that side and lean more towards both sides. But it, it, it can be so frustrating seeing that we all worked so hard. And there was, there was 17 years that went into some process to make a decision and then that decision comes out and everybody bashes it. And I think hopefully part of my podcast is that people see all the work and all the things that we're doing that and all the years that it took to like get this job. And then there's 50 million other decisions. It's not, it's not like we changed the deer hunting zone that it, it removes it from your favorite spot because we hate you. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> no, that, that is exactly what <laughs> it's all about you. Yeah, small town yeah. hunter. Shoot. Oh man, we well we went all over the place. Was yeah. there anything else that you wanted to uh to top us off on? We're a little bit over the top of our hour here. That's okay. No, if you could just um introduce yourself for my podcast. Um Yeah. Absolutely. So uh Dominic Bachman and I'm uh I like I mentioned earlier, I'm this lifelong biologist basically. I was born and raised on a uh, my dad on a big thirty thousand acre wildlife area in Utah and the house there out on the wildlife area was like my little grow up playground. And I was deciding like you kind of like, well, what do I want to do when I grow up? And my mom's side of the family down the road had a big dairy. And uh, I, I occasionally worked on the dairy and I was like, that's not cool. Like, that's <laughs> not a cool job. Like the getting up super early and smelling like cow poop. That is not what I want to do. And it's like, my dad's rolling out with this six shooter and chasing down the bad guys and, you know, managing water and counting ducks and bringing his dog with, with him to work. And I'm like, now that seems like a way cooler job. So 
that's how I ended up in this world. Currently, I work for the National Wild Turkey Federation, which is a pretty big nonprofit organization that just tries to help work managing, help state and federal agencies and private landowners work with um, promoting turkeys and turkey hunting and hunting recruitment. And um, I cover Oregon, Idaho, and Washington for that. Um, have a career mostly studying birds and very interested in just birds, bird hunting, and bird dogs. That's my life. Great. Well, thanks a lot for having the time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Sorry we went too many directions here. It was a little wild card, but it was good. She's shaking her head. She's like, I loved it. No, yeah, no, this was, this was perfect. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys.